Our scripture reading this afternoon comes from Luke chapter 22, and we'll read verses 14 through 46. Luke 22, beginning in verse 14. This uh, reading is in connection with the topic of the Heidelberg Catechism that we'll be studying this afternoon, which is the last petition of the Lord's Prayer, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so in connection with that, then we read from Luke 22, beginning in verse 14. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed." And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves." For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father has assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me, and until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you... Out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals. Did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. 
Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 86, stanzas 1 through 4. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the Christian faith, and we find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 52, and we'll read the first half of that Lord's Day, dealing with the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer. There the question is, what is the sixth petition? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is, in ourselves we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Moreover, our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, do not cease to attack us. Will you therefore uphold and strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that in this spiritual war we may not go down to defeat, but always firmly resist our enemies until we finally obtain the complete victory. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, This afternoon we come to the end of the Lord's Prayer, at least as it is recorded in Scripture. Uh, Again, we want to remember, as we have every Lord's Day, uh, that this is a model for our prayers. We don't study it merely to memorize and repeat it. We study it because it teaches us what all of our prayers should look like even if we're not using these exact words. In other words, we want to be able to understand what Jesus meant uh, with each petition, today with this one, uh, so that it would become part of our heart's daily cry to God, uh, that it would shape the way we constantly, daily speak with our Lord. Uh, and, and so that we would, in, in particular with this petition, that we would understand the tremendous importance of this petition and how desperately we need, uh, for our sake, to be praying it. So the petition is, uh, as, as the Lord Jesus said it, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or from the evil one. You can see there's two sides to this prayer, uh, and they're meant to be complementary to one another. They go together like two sides of the same coin. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. They, They belong together. Now, the first thing that should be said about this petition is that you can only properly pray this prayer after you have prayed the last petition. It follows from the last petition, forgive us our sins or our debts. As we pray to God, forgive us our debts, if we're praying that sincerely, we are also coming to a greater understanding of what those debts are. We're contemplating the vastness of the debt that we owe 
to God. Uh, We're recognizing that apart from God's forgiveness, we would be in deep moral debt and serious trouble. Uh, We recognize when we pray the last petition, our sins are not trivial matters. They are very serious with real consequences. As we saw this morning also, God means His warnings. The wrath of God is coming. Uh, So if we're praying that prayer sincerely and and taking our time to to work through it, it will cultivate within us an appropriate grief for our sins and an appropriate hatred of our sins that then leads us to this petition. And we'll be reminded of how seriously God takes our sin, how much He hates it, and how severely He judges it. Uh, We'll also begin to recognize, as we saw last week, Not only how much we've done that we shouldn't have done, but how much we should have done that we failed to do, and even more, the things that we would be capable of doing because of our sinful nature. As we come to understand those things, uh, then we'll be able to pray this petition with the right sense of urgency. And when you've really seen your sin for what it is, especially in the eyes of God, for how serious it is to Him, and you know the evil you could still do if God were to withhold His hand and, and, and leave you to do it, then you will fall on your face and cry out to God, O oh God, do not lead me into a place of temptation, but deliver me from the evil that exists, first of all, right here within myself. So this petition is, is, is only rightly prayed after the last one. Uh, there's one more reason why that's important, that it comes after the last one. And we should think about this as well. Uh, it, it's the last petition. Um, uh, the, the reason it's, it's the last petition is because it has to come only after uh, we have confessed and repented of our sins. If we have not yet confessed our sins and repented of them, we have no business praying to God to deliver us from sins that we might still commit. God is not pleased by the prayer of the person who wants to avoid future sin, but does not want to deal with, confess, and repent of past or present sin. Nor will such a prayer ever be effective. Uh, Proverbs 15, verse 8, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to Him. God accepts the prayers of those who have confessed their sins and repented of them. Uh, Proverbs 28, verse 9 as well, If a person turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination to God. Very serious warning. Uh, Scripture calls that prayer, for example, in in the letter from James, calls that kind of prayer double-minded. It's asking for help with the future while refusing to deal with the present and the past. And it will never work. We have no business uh, making such a prayer before God. Now consider the words of the Apostle James in James 4, where he says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. 
Uh, So this prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, is a prayer that belongs to the man or the woman who has confessed his sins and had them dealt with, forgiven by the blood of Christ. It's the prayer, in other words, of a pure heart and a clean conscience, desiring not to be defiled again. Uh, So we begin this prayer, lead us not into temptation, We begin this prayer with confession, repentance, and seeking the forgiveness of God. Once we've done that, then we turn and cry for God's help for future temptation. And that brings us to the next thing that ought to be said about this prayer, and it's this. This is not a prayer for strong people. It's not a prayer for strong people. Of course, we are called to be strong, Uh, But this prayer is a recognition that we're not there yet. We're not as strong as we ought to be. Uh, We are weak still when it comes to temptation. Uh, The proof of that, again, is right there in the last petition. The reason we pray this prayer is because we know what we're capable of under temptation. We know that we're not strong. Uh, You could summarize uh, three three basic reasons why Christians don't pray this prayer often enough or or fervently enough. Uh, Number one is, as we just spoke of, because they don't have the right sense of sorrow for their sin. Uh, they, they They don't feel grieved by their sin or they don't regard it as serious. That is dealt with in the last petition. Number two, because they have no idea what they're up against. We'll talk about that later this afternoon. And number three, because they don't recognize their own weakness. Those who think that they are strong will not pray this prayer with the urgency that they ought uh, to pray it. They ought to be able to look at not that long ago and recognize how often and how seriously they have failed. Uh, how they, uh, and then they ought to have an appropriate sense of fear concerning the future. If you look in the past and you know what you've done in the past, you ought to have an appropriate sense of humility and fear concerning the future. But so often we don't pray this prayer or we don't pray it fervently uh, because we don't think that we will fail. We think we're strong. We can resist the temptations that will come our way. And that is a terrible mistake. Uh, You can see this in in Luke chapter 22, which we read together. The context for this, of course, is, is the last Passover, the last supper. And as Jesus was serving the bread and wine to his disciples, he warned them, Uh, At the table there, behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. That's a word of warning that should make you pray a prayer like this. Lead us not into temptation. He says, for the Son of Man goes as as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom it has been, by whom he has been betrayed. And then it says that they they began to argue with each other about who of them would actually do such a thing. They didn't believe they were capable of betraying the Lord. And did you notice how they concluded that argument? How they resolved that discussion? It says, each one of them humbled himself and recognized how easily he might fall into temptation and, and made sure he didn't. No, it doesn't say that. I made that up. In fact, they never actually concluded that discussion. They never finished it. Instead, they just moved on. They started arguing about who would, uh, who would do such a thing, and before you know it, they were arguing about who of them is the greatest. Uh, Jesus had just warned them. You just think about it. Jesus just warned them, one of you will betray me. 
And they go off into an argument about who of them is the greatest. It should have been a humbling and a terrifying moment for every one of the disciples. It should have been the sort of thing that, that would have them seriously reckoning with their own weakness, their own uh, capacity for sin and for failure. It should have given them pause to consider, could it actually be me who might betray you? Uh, But so convinced were they that they would never make such a mistake that instead they choose to argue about who of them is the greatest. Well, the Lord Jesus, as we read, turned that argument right on its head, showing them how backwards they were in in their whole thinking about what greatness is. And, And that rebuke, too, that too ought to have given them pause to consider whether they might betray him. They had been with him three years, uh, long enough, you would think, to understand something of the nature of greatness in the kingdom of God, and Jesus shows them, you guys don't get it at all yet. That too should have given them pause for, uh, for considering whether they might be the one to betray him. And then Jesus directs his attention to Peter in verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You notice that Peter had no idea what he was up against. Little did he know that Satan had been demanding to have him, to sift him like wheat. To see and to prove what an empty kernel uh, Simon Peter was. And there Peter was arguing about being the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He didn't realize what he was up against, and he didn't realize his own weakness. You can see that also in his response. He said to the Lord Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and even to death. And Jesus says to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter had no recognition of how weak he was and how much he was up against. He hadn't spent enough time on the last petition, forgive us our debts, facing the reality of his own selfishness, his own fear, his own sinfulness, his own cowardice, all of those things that undoubtedly had showed themselves in the past. This isn't the first instance of cowardice in Peter's life. If you're dealing, if you're reckoning honestly with your sin, you know where your weaknesses lie. Uh, He had not spent enough time working on that petition uh, to develop an awareness of his own weakness. And as a result, he failed to take this petition seriously. He should have heard Jesus' warning that one of you will, will betray me. And he should have been humbled and terrified as a result, knowing that that could have been him. And in the end, even though it wasn't him, it was Judas... Yet in reality, it was also Peter. He did betray the Lord, denying three times and even swearing an oath in the name of God, a sin worthy of death in the Old Testament, swearing an oath in the name of God that he did not know Jesus. It's a pretty significant betrayal. Peter and all the disciples then thought that they were strong, and that was the precursor to them falling and failing. It... it, Uh, That illusion makes us the most vulnerable of all people. The illusion that we are strong. 
Well, those conversations that happened around, around the Lord's Supper should also help us then to understand what happened later in that, that same evening on the Mount of Olives. Jesus led His disciples out to the Mount of Olives, and when He got there, He said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. It says then He then uh, withdrew for them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and prayed. And that, that too is worth reflecting on. The Lord Jesus prayed. If you think that you are so strong that you don't need to pray or don't need to pray this long or or earnestly, uh, consider the fact that Jesus Himself also prayed. Then in verse 45, it says that when He got up from prayer, He came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And He said to them again, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Why were the disciples sleeping? They were sleeping for the same reason that we too sleep spiritually. We are lethargic in our own prayers, failing to realize what we are up against and failing to realize how weak we are. Hear me, brothers and sisters, both old and young, you are capable, even now, of very serious moral failure. Uh, And so am I. The sin and the moral failure of others is much nearer to you than you might imagine. It's good on one level when, uh, as a congregation, we are shocked when we see uh, certain serious moral failures happening within our church, as, as every church does. But every time we see it, it should also lead us uh, to a place of humility and to crying out to God, don't let this happen to me because I know that without your grace, given the same circumstances, I too could fall. If not in this sin, in another sin in relation to my own weaknesses and temptations. Uh, The Apostle Paul uh, wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, Let him who thinks he stands... Take heed, lest he fall. Let him who stands from that vantage point and says, I can't believe what that brother or that sister did, let him take heed, lest he fall as well. That's what this prayer here is for. Now, the Catechism is helpful also, uh, where it talks about the seriousness of the threat that we face. It paints for us a sort of a three-headed monster, or, or maybe to change the analogy, a, a battle with three different front lines. Uh, The first front that we're up against is the devil. Uh, Christians in the West need to understand this because Christians in the West are often clueless about spiritual forces that we are up against. Paul is very clear about it. Ephesians 6 verse 11, he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We easily, far too easily think that we are really just up against flesh and blood. We're up against a a, a liberal government that's intolerant of Christians, or we're up against people that want to threaten our livelihood. But in reality, we are up against far more a significant threat. Demonic forces determined to destroy the followers of Christ. Determined to destroy not just our livelihoods, but our very souls. We are up against them, and they are a serious threat. Peter 
Uh, after he had fallen into sin, after he was forgiven and restored, and Jesus told, to, uh, told him three times, Do you love me? If so, feed my sheep. You know that story. Uh, Peter afterwards wrote in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, uh, he wrote, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Those are the words of a man who now gets it, who now understood what he's really up against. Uh, Christians are not under the rule of demonic forces. They do not have authority over us. Uh, Jesus gives us his own powerful name by which he uh, permits us to to rebuke every evil spiritual force. Uh, But that does not mean that we are not subject to their onslaught, to their attacks. We are, and Christians in the West need to know this. Uh, we are far too often naive about the, the presence of the spiritual and the de- demonic realm. And when we are, we fail to pray this with the earnestness that we ought to pray it. Uh, satanic influences are against us that every Christian will struggle against. Uh, we talked this morning uh, very briefly about pornography. And, and I'm convinced that behind pornography, there are powerful spiritual forces determined to enslave and determined to pervert all that God has made good. Uh, we should recognize that we are not just up against flesh and blood in these sorts of battles. Uh, Christians then who are unconscious of the spiritual Warfare taking place in their lives and for their hearts, for their souls, are dangerously unprepared for battle. So Jesus warns us that we are up against Satan and his forces. The second front that we're up against is the world. This is people, uh, the, the, the kingdom of, of darkness under the realm and rule of Satan. We've talked about that also this morning. That old kingdom, and not only have we been delivered from it, but it wages war against us. They hate, the world hates those who belong to Christ. That might sound like strong language. You think, yeah, i got non-Christian colleagues and I don't think they, they hate me. But it's the words of the Lord Jesus himself. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. A world that is in rebellion against God will, and not just in rebellion, but in denial against the truth of God, they will persecute those who honor and affirm that truth, who put that truth on display again before their eyes. They will hate it because we are the evidence of the truth of the gospel, and they will hate that. If it doesn't seem to us like the world hates us, Ask the Christians of the first century, when the world had the upper hand, ask them what that hatred was like. Now, that hatred is, is, not always, uh, is not always personal. It's not hatred necessarily against you personally. It's hatred against your identity as a, as a member of the body of Christ. Uh, and and there's, that is there just as much today. Uh, because our nation has been transformed by the gospel, uh, the world is, is not at, at present, at least here, able to exterminate Christians. But were they able, they would certainly try. Uh, when I went to college in, in Washington State, I went to a liberal college. Uh, I hope that doesn't show. 
I would occasionally see bumper stickers on, on the backs of cars uh, that read, So many Christians, so few lions. I saw a number of these. So many Christians, so few lions. The message is clear. Uh, the world hates Christ. The world will hate you as well. And if the world's hatred is not directed towards killing you, as they did in the first century, it is still directed to exterminating your identity spiritually. And I know that many of you have experienced this. There are a few things the unbelieving world delights in and rejoices in more than seeing Christians fail. Colleagues will provoke you to failure. Uh, fellow students, to, to you university students beginning another year at college, fellow students will provoke you. They want to see you fail as a Christian. They're fine. They don't necessarily want to kill you as long as they can kill the Christian identity in you. And if you manage, by God's grace, to endure that pressure, they will malign you for it. Peter experienced this as well and uh, wrote to the Christians in, in the Roman Empire. He says, uh, this is 1 Peter 4, verse 3, The time is past that suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. It sounds like a brochure for many colleges today. Uh, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they will malign you. There's nothing that the world wants to extinguish more than the light of the gospel as on display in Christians who love and fear and serve Jesus Christ. They know they stand guilty and they suppress that truth in unrighteousness, Romans 1. And so they suppress also wherever they can that truth as it's on display in the lives of Christians. Our repentance and our fear of God, our humbling ourselves before uh, the gospel uh, and before God, stands to them as evidence of the same law of God that also rules over them, to which, for, for which they also must give account. Of course, then, they will hate us insofar as we are Christians. And the third front that we're up against is our own flesh. Uh, though we are born again through Christ, and, and though we are given the Holy Spirit, and He is working on our lives, sanctifying us, changing us. We saw that also this morning. Cutting off what is old and putting on what is new. Uh, we're not there yet. Uh, we're not. The remnants of sin still remain within us. The shadow of sin is not entirely gone from us. And the reality is, we are all of us still capable of tremendous evil. Uh, Paul is very honest about this in Romans 7, verse 18. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, referring, that is, to, to our old fallen human nature. Uh, he says, For I, the, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, I keep on doing. Uh, scripture, uh, wherever in cases like that it speaks of our flesh, uh, it's, it speaks of us as it speaks of that old nature as our flesh, because even though we are being renewed in Christ, our bodies and our minds are still coming out of that old system, and that includes also our emotions. When Scripture speaks of the works of the flesh, it very often lists certain emotions there as well. They are still the same bodies and minds that we had 
before we were delivered by Christ. The same bodies and minds that were enslaved to that old kingdom. And, and so sin is still profoundly and perversely wired into our bodies and our minds. Our instincts, our emotions, our, our, our patterns of thoughts are still affected by sin. We know that Christ is changing us. We rejoice to see that happening. And yet we also recognize on our own we are severely crippled by a fallen body and a fallen mind. And there's still a long ways for us to go. And in the meantime, apart from the grace of God, we are still capable of falling into into very serious sin. That's true of every one of us. The canons of Dort speak very realistically about this uh, you can tell sometimes when you're reading through the Canons of Dort, you can tell how, how much they are written out of the experience of, of Christian life. Uh, let me read just a bit from chapter 5, article 8. Uh, Canons of Dort, chapter 5, article 8. Uh, Although the power of God, whereby He confirms and preserves true believers in grace, is so great that it cannot be conquered by the flesh... Yet the converted are not always so led and moved by God that they cannot in certain particular actions turn aside through their own fault from the guidance of grace and be seduced by and yield to the lusts of the flesh. They must therefore constantly watch and pray. Language taken, of course, from Luke 22. Watch and pray that they may not be led into temptation. When they do not watch and pray, they, they not only can be drawn away by the flesh, the world, and Satan into serious and atrocious sins, but with the righteous permission of God are sometimes actually drawn away. The lamentable fall of David, Peter, and the other saints described in Holy Scripture demonstrates this. By such gross sins, just to finish up that article, by such gross sins, however, they... They greatly offend God, they incur the guilt of death, they grieve the Holy Spirit, they suspend the exercise of their faith, they severely wound their consciences, and sometimes for a while lose the sense of God's favor until they return to the right way through sincere repentance and God's fatherly face shines on them once again. You are capable of severely wounding the, the, the exercise and life of faith given you by Christ. Now, you are capable of falling into serious and atrocious sin. It's understandable that we don't want to see that. We're wired just like Peter and the other disciples saying, I would never, would never do that. Uh, but but we, we, until we do see how, how easily we can fall, we won't pray this prayer with the earnestness that we ought to. So Scripture shows us these, these three fronts, this, this three-headed monster that is our enemy, uh, these forces that work to destroy us. And, and though Christ, as the canons of Dort make clear, Christ will preserve those who belong to Him, nonetheless, He will do this only by means of our prayers to Him. So Christ teaches us and the apostles also urge us, pray that you will not enter into temptation. If you will survive that, that onslaught that does stand against you, it will only be by means of uh, your prayers. Now there's a, a bit of a theological problem with this petition and I should address it. And it, it, it's this, uh, we know from scripture that God himself never actually tempts anyone. 
The Apostle James, for example, says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Why then does Jesus teach us to pray, lead us not, or don't lead us, into temptation? I think the, uh, there's a number of different explanations that are given, some uh, more complex than others. I think the plainest explanation of this conundrum is simply to recognize that even though God does not tempt anyone, He is sovereign over the course of our lives, meaning He is in complete control And sometimes he does leave people in a place where they will fall into temptation because they're enticed by their own desires. That's the point, in fact, that the Apostle James also makes. He says, when each each person uh, sins, when they are tempted and lured and enticed by their own desire. And isn't this exactly what happens every time we sin? God allows us sometimes, for His own reasons, to enter into a circumstance where we are tempted, and then, not because God tempts us, but because the devil, the world, and our own flesh entice us, we fall, and it's our own fault. God is not the one who tempts us then, but He does leave us in places where we are vulnerable and where we will fall on our own strength. So God doesn't give the evil desire, but He does sometimes let that desire reveal itself. Uh, God puts us in a place where our sinful desires, which we haven't fought against like we should have, haven't prayed about like we should have, and in some cases failed to even acknowledge we're there, will cause us to fail. That's then, again, what this prayer is all about. It's the prayer of the sinner who has been forgiven, who knows his sin, has been forgiven, but he knows how strong the forces are against him and how weak he is as evidenced by the sin he's already committed and therefore who cries out to God, don't bring me there. Because I know that if you bring me there and you don't deliver me from it, I will fall. I am not strong enough to endure and that's the other half of this prayer, then. That's why it comes in two parts. Uh, the corollary to this request, lead us not into temptation, is deliver us from evil. In other words, God, if it is your will that I should be tried and tested in a place of temptation that I'm not strong enough to endure, then please be my strength. Help me through it, lest I should fall, because I know that without your help, I will fall and fail. And brothers and sisters, God hears that prayer and promises to answer it. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So when we pray this petition, We are praying for what God promises He will give in answer to our prayer. If we don't pray, we cannot count on God's help. But if we pray often and earnestly, God promises He will answer that prayer. He will not let you fall. He will provide a way out. Uh, One last word before we close. I said at the beginning of this sermon that for us to pray this prayer with integrity... It has to come after the last, uh, the previous petition. We must first confess our past and present sins and repent of them. 
But also in addition to that, for us to pray this prayer with integrity, we must also take the steps that God has set before us and use the means that God has given us to not lead ourselves into temptation. It makes no sense to pray to God, lead us not into temptation, but I'm going to go there by myself. It's not a prayer prayed with integrity. This means fleeing from temptation that we know we're not going to be able to withstand. You think of Joseph in the house of Potiphar, leaving his robe behind and running naked out of Potiphar's house as Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. He ran because he knew he would not withstand it. Now you think of the admonition of the Lord Jesus. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better to, you, to lose one of your members than that your whole body should be thrown into hell. Now Jesus is speaking there in hyperbole, of course, because your right eye is not what wrong eye. Your right eye is not what causes you to sin. It's, it's the heart that works through that eye that causes that sin. But nonetheless, you can apply that principle. Uh, to things like your computers, your smartphones, your TVs, your internet connections. Uh, You cannot pray this prayer with integrity while being unwilling to deal in an effective manner with the temptations that are there provided. Uh, God does not and will not bless that kind of prayer. Uh, Cut off those sources of temptation that you will not be able to withstand or put the barriers in place that will keep you from using them. Uh, To pray this prayer sincerely implies cutting off or fleeing from those places of temptation that you're asking God not to lead you into. And then praying this with integrity also means taking the means that God has given you and making good use of them. Some of the means that God has given us are His Word. I've never seen a Christian who neglects spending time in God's Word and is still strong in the face of temptation. God gives us His Word for that purpose. Uh, Another another means is the worship services. A few things bolster our resolve uh, to fight against sin more than being here, seeing uh, the glory and holiness of God as we sit before His Word and as we sing His praises. Use the means that God has given. Uh, And along with that, also the encouragement and accountability of fellow Christians. Uh, Make use of these means. Find people that can hold you accountable. And, And in this vein, uh, we think of the home, visit, the home visit season beginning. That's a means that God has given you. If there are struggles you are not withstanding, bring them before your elders. You'll be surprised. They're not, they're not shocked by much anymore these days. Bring that before your elders. They will help you. They are there, and God has given them to you for that purpose. So, brothers and sisters, consider the seriousness of our sins. Consider how near we are to failing apart from the grace of God, uh, the, the, the sort of cliff from which God has pulled you back. And even after you're pulled back, your heart is still pounding, knowing how close you were to falling. Consider that danger that you were in and would still be in were it not for His grace. Consider the enemies that stand against you, the devil, the world, and our own fallen flesh. And then cry out to God every day with a heartfelt cry, Lead me not 
into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. And having prayed that prayer, run to Christ, the only one who can deliver you from evil. The one in whom you have salvation and in whom you have the promise that He's made that we sang this morning and also at the beginning of this service. The promise that I will never leave you or forsake you. Turn to Him. Trust in Him. Rest in Him. Depend daily on Him. And He will, as, as uh, the Apostle says in Jude, He will confirm, strengthen, and establish you and take you with Him ultimately into glory and into the heavenly perfection and sinlessness that we all as Christians are waiting for. Amen. Let's respond to the Word of God by singing from Psalm 141, stanzas 1 through 4. Thank you.